0: Hi, everyone. I am Brene Brown, and this is Dare to Lead. We are back with part two of our podcast with doctors Erica James and Lynn Perry-Wooten. And we are talking about their new book, The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis More Resilient Than Before. Oh, I loved the first part of this conversation. Did you? I loved it. And now we're going to get into some nitty gritty. It's not easy. I mean, this whole idea that being a prepared leader is almost impossible if you're a protecting ego leader. Yeah. Yeah. You can pick prepared or protected ego, but you just really can't have both. They're mutually exclusive. If you listen to the first episode, which you really should listen to the first episode of this before the second one, you'll know I love this book. You'll know that we're going to read it here. It's tactical. It's practical. It's based on such great research. I mean, they spent decades studying crisis management what to do and what not to do and how it works. It's great, relatable stories. And then you just things that I love, like chapter recaps at the end and tables that show everything that they're talking about. It's just so good.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, Two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit Apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply.
2: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. So quick
0: bio, if you are just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Erica James, who became the Dean of the Wharton School on July 1st, 2020. She's trained as an organizational psychologist. She is an expert on crisis leadership, workplace diversity, and management strategy. Before being at Wharton, she was the Dean at Emory University's Goizetta Business School for six years. She is an educator. She is an academic. She's a scholar. She's a theorist. It's just She has so much to share with us. Joining us is Dr. Lynn Perry-Wooten, who is a seasoned academic, an expert on organizational development and transformation, and is the ninth president of Simmons University and the first African-American to lead the institution. Before she was at Simmons, she was the dean at the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. And before that, she served on the faculty of the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. Interestingly, Lynn and Erica met each other in their PhD programs at Michigan and have been friends since and co-conspirators and collaborators and truth tellers and friends and backup and all the good stuff that we all need. Let's jump in. So just a quick welcome back to Erica James, Lynn Perry Wooten, We are talking about The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis, More Resilient Than Before. The book has just come out from Wharton School Press. I'm having my leaders read it. It is the real deal in terms of, you know, I thought about this a lot when I was reading this book. Very early, my first non-academic speaking event. So this wasn't Grand Rounds or this wasn't at a university. This was like some people asked me to come speak and... I don't know how this person got the recommendation, but right before I went on, she was practicing reading the bio, and she said, "Oh my God, you're a shame researcher. I thought you were a happiness researcher." And you know, my real response was, "I don't know much about that, but I, you know and I said, "Well, I talk about the things that really get in the way, not just what we should be doing. I just think it's such a fool's errand, even when I read articles that are just like, here's what you should do, and don't address the real humanity that gets in the way sometimes of doing right. it." And every time you give a strategy here in this book, you prepare us for the gremlins that are going to get in the way, for those little voices that say, this is scary. What if I'm wrong? Should I ask someone else? So it's so tactical, this book. Did you want it to be more of a handbook than a theoretical overview?
3: Our last book was The Heavy Theory We want at this time someone going from Chicago to L.A. to pick up the book and say, how can I be a prepared leader and have all the sticky notes like you have, take notes and then go into their C-suite and have everybody else read the book and discuss it. What's the next crisis on the horizon and what are the tips and
0: tools I can use from this book? I want to start with a quote that's at the top of chapter seven. I'm on page 85 in the book. It's a quote from Marion K. Pinsdorf that says, all crises are global. Unpack that for me. I'm an American. I
3: admit it. And I think all crises are in the United States. I'm an optic and I had this viewpoint. But the more and more we study crisis, it's just not isolated to one community, one geographical region. It's all a global crisis. What happens in the United States is going to impact the other parts of the world and vice versa. And so we want leaders to lead, after they read our book, to understand you need a global mindset. And part of having a global mindset is being able to frame the crisis and to think about the culture context and the greater mega community you need to get back to business
4: recovery. The intersections that exist, we are too deeply embedded in every facet of society to think that what happens in one region of the world isn't somehow going to manifest and affect People in another part of the world, the pandemic is an extreme example of that, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. One of the things that I think it's important to highlight is we've gotten very comfortable prior to the pandemic. We got very comfortable with describing every inconvenience as a crisis. Even our language, we say things like, oh, got to spend all my day fighting fires, got to put out a crisis of month or crisis of the day. So we just began to assume that anything that was inconvenient or troublesome was in fact a crisis. And I think the pandemic actually helped us realize what a true crisis is. So when this phrase, this quote, all crises are global... We're not talking about the day-to-day problems that you find inconvenient and that you describe as a crisis. We're really talking about things of such significance that the likelihood of them happening has implications around the globe.
0: Wow. You know, as a language person, I'm really struck by something here. When I was doing the research for Atlas of the Heart, And I got into the academic literature around stress and overwhelm and how these are two very different constructs and how often I thought about, you know, for myself, language doesn't just communicate emotion. It actually shapes our neurobiology, our Mm -hmm. physiology. And I thought how many times a day sometimes I use the term overwhelmed when really I'm not overwhelmed, life is not actually unfolding faster than my, you know, than my system can handle. I'm actually stressed. It's more whack-a-mole than it is complete overwhelm. And just changing my language. So now I say to myself, we know from the research, there's one antidote to overwhelm and it is nothingness. You literally have to get up, walk around, take a break, walk the parking lot, meditate. You've got to do nothing in order for your, your right. system to reset. So now I say to myself, Brene, unless you're prepared to get up and do nothing, unless it's that bad, call it stressed. Don't call it overwhelmed. We completely are hyperbolic around the term crisis. Yeah. So what is a better way? Should I just be saying, wow, this feels like a serious challenge. I've got to deal with some problems today, or I've got to deal with some sticky stuff, or like, what? do you have a good word for us? I use challenge a lot.
4: And challenge means it can be overcome, right? Right. So to me, the distinction that I make when I'm working and talking with people is a problem is something that you've likely experienced before. There's a solution for it. You have the resources to address it. Resources being the human capital, the financial capital, the know-how, right? And if those characteristics exist, then whatever threat you're facing is something that you can address, right? It's inconvenient. You'd rather not have to devote your resources to that. But the reality is, you know that you're going to be able to overcome this. And when we refer to problems as crises, when something does happen that is significant, we're not equipped. And we've never put the time and the willpower into understanding what it actually means to equip ourselves and our organizations for things that we've
0: never experienced before.
3: And then that's where the competencies in the book come out,
0: Renee. Yeah, I mean, this is such a profound moment because language is so important, not only in our personal lives, but also in our work lives. In mental health, when we talk about a crisis, we think we're outside of the normal distribution Of behaviors that are predictable, knowledge we can draw on. And it's almost the same in a business crisis. Like, right. And so I think this is really important. Let's talk about in a crisis, what role and what level of importance does communication play?
3: I say communication is everything. You know, communicate, communicate, communicate. In the book, when we talk about trust, Mm. we talk about communicating being one of the three C's, right? If you're going to build trust among your various stakeholders, one, you have to communicate. Two, you have to demonstrate that you're competent. And you have to think about the psychological contract that you have with your employers, my students, for example, my alum, they could be your shareholders. And we know that communication has gotten very complex since Erica and I first started studying crisis, (laughs) right? You know, you have social media, you have newspaper, you have television, you have internal communication, you have external communication. So every phase of that crisis, you have to think about what is the message that I want to communicate? How will the receiver receive it? And am I listening and incorporating feedback? A lot of the time, in fact, most of the crisis management research started in the communication field. And we wanted to expand it beyond communication to really what leadership looks like.
4: Communication is a necessary but insufficient aspect of leadership during a crisis, Drill down. So you cannot expect your organization to come through the crisis if you're not transparent and sharing information. It's important to realize it's not always the CEO who's the best, most effective communicator, right? Mm -hmm, So identifying who in your organization should be that person that's doing the communicating is key. But if that's all you do and you don't do some of the other competencies that we describe in the book, you're not willing to be creative. You're not able to take risks. You're not willing to make sense of information around you. Those are other aspects of leadership during times of crisis that will allow the communication to be more effective.
3: I think the other thing important about communication goes to something you say in Dare to Lead. The organization and the individuals have to know their values. And those values have to be, consistent in the communication and they have to speak to them and walk the talk.
0: People have to feel your values in what you're saying. Mm
3: -hmm. Right. You got to feel your values or your communication. I'm not going to believe you. Let's talk about CrossFit. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk
0: about CrossFit as an example. So
3: tell us the story. So, you know, this notion of CrossFit and the CEO using technology to communicate and maybe not communicate things that were the norm during the George Floyd. So if you look at, I think it's page 87, because I wanted to read. I had marked it after you say, let's see what page it was there.
0: It's 87. Yep, it's 87. I, right? I, I know you, I knew <laughs> you were right. You know, yeah. and,
3: you know, you have this notion of posted a comment on social media that made light of COVID-19 and the Floyd murder. I mean, all of us can remember what we were going through. I think that that had to be about June. Yes. of 2020, yes. you know, we realized we weren't going back to work two weeks now. We were stuck in our houses. And Erica and I definitely remember we had George Floyd and we, our two kids were graduating from high school. So it was a June. I remember they weren't getting their normal high school graduation. Yeah. And, you know, so we had this notion of that this racism as a public health issue. And he tweeted, it's Floyd 19, this, and a slew of remarks leaked into the press about Floyd's death that had a public backlash. He was insensitive to what's going on. He was not using the right platform. And what happens is in less than a month, they lost thousands of their affiliated gyms and people who believe in this CrossFit program. More importantly, we talk about in this book as just as important as he failed to understand the global dimension. The George Floyd incident in Black Lives matters it wasn't only here in the United States. You could turn on your TV yeah. and you saw the entire world feeling the pain of what was going on here in America. And so this is someone where we needed a more emotional intelligence. We needed the sensitivity. We needed a respect for diversity of what was happening in the world.
0: I have friends today all over the world that said George Floyd's murder changed the way they work, changed the way they think, changed their offices, changed their businesses. I mean, long overdue and still ongoing racial reckoning, It's the biggest change
3: I've seen in my life because I'm too young to remember King, but I had not seen anything Mm -hmm. relating to race relations that we've seen in the last two years since George Floyd.
4: Right. And in the CrossFit example, he was literally tone deaf to what was happening and insensitive to the cares of his consumer base and his gym owners and just didn't see
0: what the rest of the world saw or didn't care great consequence. There's something I say, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I say it a lot when I'm working with companies, and I'm open to hearing that it's off or not nuanced enough. I want to learn. It seems to me that if you wait to try to build trust as a leader until you're in a crisis, you're too late.
4: So this is my hot button issue. (laughs)
0: Oh, I love it. I got a hot button issue. <laughs> I did see Erica leaning in a little bit. Yeah. I
4: read something, and I completely agree, when you talk about soft skills, and we always put soft skills in air quotes, yeah. right? What I say is that the soft skills are the hardest thing that we ever do. Yeah. And we've got to start treating them accordingly, which means practice.
0: Skills building. Skill yes, building. Right. In this.
4: And so- part of those soft skills are building really high quality, effective relationships, relationships that are based on mutual trust. And if you wait until you need something from your people or from your team or from your customers, if you haven't done the pre-work to build that set of trusting relationships with those stakeholders, what on earth makes you think they're gonna be there for you in your time of need, right? But if you've done that work in advance, most times
0: people will walk through fire to help you. Right, God, it's true, right?
3: Or give you grace. And so Erica likes to call this the trust bank.
0: Yeah. Right.
3: We call trust the marble jar.
0: It's right. like, it's a collection yeah. of small moments collected over time. Right. And moments from, you know, acknowledging that you're being overlooked in a meeting and saying, let's work on this together. I'm not going to swoop in and rescue you. But let's come up with a strategy so you can be heard to how's your mom's chemotherapy going to, I mean, a collection of small moments that, you know, add up to something that in a crisis, people will, if the jar is full, I've seen people do extraordinary things for other people.
3: Yeah, yeah. And it takes lots of time and energy to make the jar full. God, (laughs) it takes so much time. And especially, you know, we were new leaders. So we talk about in the book, we started our job in the middle of the pandemic. Many of the people on our leadership team, we never got to meet in person until six months or a year later. And so we had to think of creative ways to build up the
4: trust jar. There were times when I was dean at Emory University at the Goizueta Business School, and I had an incredible team that I was working with. And it was not uncommon for me to talk about my team and use the word love. Like I loved that team. Mm -hmm. And there were times when I would get emotional, not, you know, woman crying in the office, but woman so either so happy about something that we've done together as a team. Mm -hmm. And I remember early in my two years now at the Wharton School, first year being completely online, we didn't really have those, I hadn't been able to build the same quality relationships yet. And something happened. And I was telling my former colleagues and they said, oh, did you cry? And I said, no. And they said, oh, that's because you don't love them yet. (laughs) And I love my team now. But, you know, in those early days when it was really difficult as a new person coming into the organization to try to build relationships over Zoom, it was hard to feel that connection, that interpersonal, emotional connection to form those relationships. Now that we've been back in person, I, of course, can look and see so much about what I love about the people that I work with and the people that I'm doing work for, which are our students and our faculty. And I think that's so critical because people feel that and they want to reciprocate and they want to support you and they want to help you through really difficult decisions.
0: God, it's true. I mean, we are just neurobiologically hardwired for connection. We are. You know, and when we make those connections, it's pretty incredible what we can do together.
3: And we need connections to be prepared leaders. And like I said, we moved to new cities and new jobs in the middle of a crisis
0: and had to think about ways to build connections. Well, this goes back to where I wanted to start. Were y'all scared, respectively? I mean, like, you know, going into these positions, these are hard jobs that you have. I mean, Simmons is just, I make up, it's a hard school to lead because with the social justice impact, commitment to the world. I make up it has to feel like a minefield sometimes. And then I think of Wharton as tough and hard and competitive. And you eat what you kill is what I really think of. (laughs) I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. So those are some stereotypes that I'm bringing into your jobs, which may or may not be true. So I'm curious in the middle of a crisis, when you take over leadership of something that is complex and challenging, what was it like? Let's start with Lynn. And, you know, and that we're
3: personal beings, too. So I said we had to move. We had to start new jobs. Erica and I both had children that were starting college. I was selling a house in Ithaca, New York. Imagine trying to sell a house in Ithaca, New York in the middle of a pandemic. And my oldest was starting his first job as an attorney. So a new job. And yes, lots of things. My mom was transitioning out of her house. And so it was lots of different things. Jeez. Was it hard? Was I scared? You know, leading a university that's grounded in social justice. And one of the few women colleges left that identifies as women centered and thinking about that trajectory. And then being in Boston, the Uber College town where I've Harvard and MIT in my background and BU and <laughs> BC, you know, as I'm leading this small women center college and we co-ed for grad schools, so I had to think about, you know, what's the new model? For tuition-dependent business school, how do we bring front and center the importance of women education? How do we keep our social justice mission? We educate nurses and social workers who are burned out. Yeah. Oh, God, we're tired. Yeah, they're tired. All of those were types of things for leading a small tuition-dependent university. So, yeah. But I went back to the principles we talked about, the principles you talk about, and I get up every day and try to be the best leader that I can.
0: What's one thing, and this is not fair because Erica will be able to prepare. What's one thing that you like more than you thought you would like? And what's one thing that was, is so much more challenging than you thought? So
3: I can start with the challenging. When you're a dean, you get to really be more on the ground. So I got to Mm -hmm. spend more time with students and faculty and staff. You know, the president, half of my day is outside of the organization, doing advancement work or talking to other presidents or travel. You know, you kind of miss that intimate time that, you know, I don't get to go to a volleyball game as much or have lunch with students. What I can say, though, is, is that both Boston and Simmons has been a welcoming community. They, um, yeah, and you know, people don't think about Boston that way, but it has been an extremely welcoming community and supportive of my leadership journey, my strategy, and Simmons. And getting to know my team in a pandemic era has been a wonderful experience.
0: I love that. Okay, Erica, tell me what it was like for you, and then you have to answer my questions if you will. So, much
4: the same experience. I relocated from Atlanta to Philadelphia, left my family because my daughter was graduating high school, left. So it was just me sitting in an apartment in Center City, Philadelphia where I knew no one. The city was boarded up because it was just the week after all the racial protests from George Floyd. The city was shut down because of COVID. Those were dark, dark days. You asked whether or not I was scared. Scared, no. I think because things were happening so rapidly, the decisions that we had to make were so immediate (laughs) that there was no time to be scared. Yeah. But I do remember over time feeling lonely and feeling isolated. And because I'm such a person very much invested in the personal relationships with people that I work, not having any of those personal relationships, it was six or eight months before I met a single person in person really in this job. So I was making decisions around, you know, whether to close different aspects of the campus when I'd never been on the campus.
3: Right, we had to imagine. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't even seen the house I moved in Boston. Had you seen your
4: apartment before
3: or just video? I had to
4: get it sight unseen.
3: We both moved into places in Boston and Philly sight unseen because people weren't letting you in.
4: Yeah, so those were rough, rough days. I will say that to answer your second question, and what surprised me or
0: what was a challenge that was more difficult that you anticipated, and what was something that was surprisingly better than you thought it would be?
4: So the surprisingly better than I thought it would be is actually a counter to your stereotype of the Wharton School.
0: <laughs> Wait, let me laugh for a second. That's good. <laughs> set it straight, Dr. James. Set it straight.
3: <laughs> I'm laughing with you, Brene. <laughs>
4: So prior to spending time and getting to know this Wharton community, I too thought it was like you described, that it was competitive, that it was cutthroat, mm-hmm. that it was cold, that it was impersonal, that it was, you know, all of these things. And I was stunned to find out it was not that. And...
3: So your Wharton example is like my Boston example. Yes, yes. exactly.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fueled on nothing but bullshit, but still in real in my mind.
4: <laughs> and the way I found this out was... Because I started, we were just living through all the racial protests and racial mm-hmm. reckoning and whatnot. I was a little anxious about how I, as a Black woman, was going to come into the Wharton School and wow. what we were going to do around diversity and what people within the Wharton community think, oh, she just has a personal agenda that she wants to, you know, get pushed forward. So I was pretty reticent to do anything around the diversity front. And it was our faculty and our students that set the expectation that Wharton was going to. Do something. Wharton was going to go out front. Wharton had a commitment and a responsibility to be a part of the narrative when it came to diversity, equity, and inclusion, for example. And that was my indication that this is a school that's very different from what I thought it would be. And the level of support that I saw, our faculty, how can we help you? What do you need from us? It was really tremendous. So I do want to just clarify for your listeners that we do have the stereotype that you described, but the reality of what this community is like is very, very different. So that was my biggest pleasant surprise.
0: I believe that, and I've done that thing too, where I know several of your faculty members, and I'm, you know, good friends with Adam Grant, right. and and I'm always like, oh, they must be the exception. And Adam's like, you need to read, think again. I'm not. Yes, we're think not again. The, 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 <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I've been there and done talks there, and it was like one of the most fun places I've ever been. <laughs> yes. But I just I'm holding on to it for some reason. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know why, but I love to hear that that was a delightful surprise. It was a delightful surprise, surprise, yes.
4: And then the biggest challenge that I did not anticipate was, I knew Wharton was big and I knew Wharton was a prominent business school. I didn't Mm. realize how influential it was in the world and how visible it is in the world. So when a decision is made, from the Wharton School or when we're launching something or choosing not to do something, it gets known. And I wasn't fully appreciative at how visible the school is and how therefore visible I was going to be. So I think that's been the challenge to recognize people want to know what we're doing and people will have some evaluation or critique. And I've got to be okay with that.
0: Yeah. I want to know what you're doing and I pay attention to what y'all are doing. And the same with Simmons. And even before, that's why I said yes to the event there during the middle of the pandemic, because I'm curious about what y'all are doing. And you're one of the only few institutions that are still really social justice first focused. We are. And so is it hard for y'all that people are watching with criticism balled up and ready to toss? It is constantly.
3: And we're constantly texting each other saying, did you see Simmons in the paper? Did you see Warden in the paper? And our kids are texting mm. us saying, did you see us? And so it's, you're constantly under this microscope. Oh yeah. And it's spilled out to our family and our friends too. And so, you know, it goes back again to, we're always having to show up and daring to lead and making sure That's we're it. representing our
0: organizations and their values. That is it. And sometimes I'll get a text from one of my kids. I've got a 23 year old and a 17 year old so a junior in high school and then a daughter in graduate school that'll just say, oh, hey, mom, I was on social media. You okay? And I'm like, yeah. shit. <laughs> I know. You weren't supposed to
4: see
1: that.
0: <laughs> I, know, I know. Somehow it feels worse when your kids see it because you're like, don't forget I'm awesome. Hashtag. Right. all liars. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Hashtag awesome mom. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want the people that know me outside of, like, I always think, I wish there would, could be, like, a professional geographic bubble. So, like, the other moms I hang out with or my friends from the neighborhood yeah. don't see the work takedowns because <laughs> I always feel like they, you know, I go to a water polo game or something, they're like, hmm, you okay? <laughs> I'm like, that was a bot. Leave me alone. <laughs> and my daughter's a dancer, so I go to a dance event. And you're like, oh. right, Yes. <laughs> That's
3: tough. Right. The dance mom started The dance mom. Yeah. The dance mom's <laughs> like,
0: hey, have you read your Instagram comments? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love y'all's friendship. I just love it. It's so wonderful to see just two powerful women making the world a better place who are texting each other like, what the heck just happened? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Daily. Daily. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, we need it, right? Oh, we definitely do. We're each other's
4: support team. A cheerleader. Yeah. You name it.
0: Yep. That's it. Truth teller.
3: Yeah. Truth teller for sure.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: All right, y'all ready for the rapid fire? Yes.
2: Sure. Okay.
0: I know y'all well enough to know that y'all are preparers. So if I ask Erica first, Lynn's going to be like, okay, I'm going to have an answer. And then All I ask right. Lynn, so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go back and forth on who gets to go first. Erica, first one. Yes. Fill in the blank for me. Vulnerability is? Part of life. Lynn? Putting your ego aside. Lynn, what is something that people often get wrong about you? They forget I'm an introvert. <sighs> Hashtag same. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Erica, what's something people often get wrong about you?
4: They think because I'm kind and nice that
0: I'm not tough. Not a mistake I would make. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's (laughs) tough. So both of you, and I'm going to have Erica answer first. What's a piece of leadership advice that you were given that was so great you need to share it with us or so shitty that you need to warn us? Ooh,
4: so great was a colleague when I was at the University of Virginia said, leadership is about managing energy first in yourself and then in others. And I thought that was profound. Whoa. Managing energy first in yourself and then in others.
3: That's a good.
0: One. Well, I'm not good at the first one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Most of us aren't. <laughs> okay. Lynn.
3: So I got the advice that women often say no because they don't have the confidence. And so they'll say, I can't do this because this is a stretch assignment. I'm not going to take that promotion. But instead and say, yes, and what do I need to do the job? Who do I need and what do I need to do the job?
0: So are we less confident or, this is so profound for me, Lynn, because are we less confident Or have we been socialized not to ask for what we need to be successful?
3: Ask for what we need and to take that risk. A man may only do 50% of the job, but he'll say, okay, I'll take the promotion. The woman wants to be prepared and have 90% of the skills. But instead say, yes, and this is what I need to do the
0: job well. I love it. Okay. Lynn first. What's one thing you're grateful for right now?
3: My family and my village.
0: Beautiful. Erica? I would say my health. Oh, none of us... Look the same way at that again. Okay. I love this. So we'll go Erica first. You gave us five songs you can't live without. Right. What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, Happy by Pharrell Williams, Hello by Adele, Celebrate by Earth, Wind & Fire, and Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars. In one sentence... And I have to add this caveat every time I'm talking to academics that has no semicolons or (laughs) m-dashes and is not a paragraph long in one succinct short sentence. What does this mixtape say about you? I desire to see the positivity in life. (sighs) Beautiful. Okay, Lynn, your songs Golden by Jill Scott. I say a little prayer by Nita Freelon. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? Yep, a Simmons. Okay. Conqueror by Estelle, Don't Stop Believing by Journey, and Motown Philly by Boys to Men. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. Okay. In one non academic sentence, what does this say about you?
3: Leadership is about dancing when no one's looking.
0: Ooh. (laughs) What a gift both of y'all are to the world, to this book. I'm never going to say again, this is my pledge to y'all. I'm never going to say people, planet, profit without saying preparedness. Thank you. Then I will reference where I got that from. Awesome. Yeah, because it's so good. It's so smart. And it dovetails so powerfully with just what I know about courage and vulnerability and showing up. And doing hard things, which is why good leadership is so rare, right? It's just, it's so good. Thank you.
3: It complements all the great work you've done. And thank you.
0: Yeah, it's just wonderful. Thank y'all for being on Dare to Lead. And thank you for the book. Yeah, I'm grateful.
3: We're grateful. We're grateful too.
0: Thank you, Brene. Thank you. Thank y'all. God, I feel so lucky to be able to have conversations like this. So did you learn a lot, Barrett? I did, I did. Anything stick with you? Um, She's consulting her 5,000 pages of notes in her.
4: I love what Lynn said at the end, that leadership is about dancing when no one is looking.
0: I mean, those two pieces of advice, leadership is about dancing when no one's looking. And also what Erica said about managing your energy first and then other people. I mean, wow. Yeah. I got to learn how to manage my energy. Same. I thought you were going to say you do. That's, <laughs> that was the look on your face. Yeah. I'm glad y'all are here. If you want to find a copy of The Prepared Leader, Emerge From Any Crisis, more resilient than before, wherever, you know, get that wherever you like to buy books. It's such a fast, digestible, easy to metabolize, hard to put into practice, but easy to understand book of knowledge and wisdom. I love it. You can go to our episode pages on Brené Brown.com to find links to more information about Erica and Lynn, where they work, their work, Wharton, Simmons. It'll all be there along with transcripts. Thank you for being back with us on the Dare to Lead podcast and stay awkward, brave, and kind. Dare to Lead is produced by Brene Brown, Education and Research Group. Music is by The Sufferers. Get new episodes as soon as they're published by following Dare to Lead on your favorite podcast app. We are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more award-winning shows at podcasts.voxmedia.com. I just gotta get out most
3: days, you see. I like
2: walking around, it's good for me. Did you tell me where we could go? He'd take me to the good. I'll talk
0: to you no?